All right, that's our scripture this morning, John chapter 8, beginning in verse 48, if you want to turn there or navigate there on your device. John 8, 48 through 59. The topic, Jesus makes the remarkable claim that anyone who keeps his word will never die. The title of our message, I won't die anymore now that you've saved me. Tony Bennett. I won't die anymore. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for our meeting today, our gathering together of the saints. I pray that our hearts would be thrilled, Lord, to hear you speak to us by your Holy Spirit through your Holy Word. That we would just take a minute, Lord, and and meditate on the understanding that the creator of the universe, the almighty God, is speaking to us by the Spirit who indwells us and by the power of this Word. We pray for anyone who doesn't enjoy those privileges, Lord, that closeness, that intimacy that's here today, that you would open their heart, open their eyes to receive the Lord. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. An immortal billionaire with a space fetish. Sounds like the tagline for a sci-fi flick that scored 38% on Rotten Tomatoes. It isn't. Billionaire, second richest man in the world, founder of Amazon, Jeff Bezos is pursuing immortality. He's not the only billionaire who thinks they can beat death. Oracle founder Larry Ellison has donated more than $370 million to research about aging and age-related diseases. PayPal co-founder Peter Thiel has made headlines for his interest in immortality related to a startup company called Ambrosia. Sam Altman, billionaire owner of OpenAI, is funding digital consciousness, which is uploading your brain to the cloud. In the unlikely possibility you get the opportunity to meet a billionaire obsessed with immortality, here's what you say to them. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps God's word, he shall never see death. The Lord said this to the Jewish religious leaders. They quoted it back to him with a slight change. Instead of saying he will never see death, they say he shall never taste death. It presents two aspects of death, the death that Jesus was talking about. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, you will never see death because Jesus went there for you. And number two, you will never taste death because Jesus defeated it for you. Let's take a look at never seeing death in verses 48 through 51. How many times do you live? We like to say YOLO, meaning you only live once. It became so popular that it made its way into dictionaries in 2016. So you can use it in uh, Scrabble. Ian Fleming wrote, you only live twice, once when you are born and once when you look death in the face. I guess that would be abbreviated YOLT, right? YOLO, so it's either YOLO or YOLT. More importantly, how many deaths are there? Everyone dies at least once. Some will only die twice. Too many will die three times. Everyone dies at least once. God told Adam and Eve that if they disobeyed his one reasonable command, in the day that you eat of the tree of, the good, of good and evil, you shall surely die. They ate, they died. Not physically, but spiritually. They were separated from spiritual fellowship with God, It is passed on to us, their offspring. 
Every human thus dies at least once in that we are born dead in trespasses and sins. Some only die twice. Adam and Eve began to physically die when they sinned. Greg Laurie likes to say, 10 out of 10 people die. There is one exception. When Jesus returns to resurrect the deceased saints of the church age, believers who are alive will not die. They will be transformed and accompany the resurrected saints to heaven. The third death is the second death. Also, who's on first? I don't mean that to be weird, but if, it, it, it's true. The third death is called the second death. If a person dies physically, while they remain uh, dead spiritually, the Bible calls that the second death. It is eternal conscious punishment in the lake of fire. Jesus is talking about the second death. He made it possible to never see or taste the second death. Augustine wrote, we made bad use of immortality and so ended up dying. Christ made good use of mortality that we might end up living. Let's put in in verse 48. Then the Jews answered and said to him, Do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? The Jews is the Apostle John's shorthand for the Jewish religious authorities. Many of the Jewish people believed Jesus, but not their leaders, not the authorities. They challenged Jesus, resulting in the dramatic back-and-forth dialogue recorded in this chapter. They called Jesus a Samaritan. For a time in her history, Israel was split into two separate countries. The southern kingdom was called Judah. The northern kingdom was called Israel. Two tribes in the south, ten tribes in the north. The Assyrian Empire conquered Israel in the north around 722 B.C., they carried away most of the Israelites. Those who were allowed to stay behind intermarried with the Assyrians, producing the Samaritans. Jews looked down upon them as half-breeds. The Jews knew that Jesus was not a half-breed. Their accusation here is theological. The Samaritans had their own temple, their own copy of the first five books of the Old Testament, and their own religious system. Calling Jesus a Samaritan is the equivalent of accusing him of heresy. They're saying he's a false teacher like the Samaritans. Can a demon be Christian-possessed? The Jews often accused Jesus of having a demon. It was their baseless explanation of how Jesus was able to perform miracles. They would rather present a stupid argument than admit the obvious that Jesus performed miracles in the power of God. Multitudes of really smart people are just like that today. They promote, for example, the theory of evolution, even though the science does not support it. As a Christian, I'm not worried about evolution and creation because we look at the evidence and the science does not support the theory of evolution. So much so, as I've told you before, I know I, I joke around too much, and so you never know when to believe me, but this is a true thing. Uh, scientists, a lot of them who are honest at least, non-believers, they admit that there is no proof anywhere for the theory of evolution to be true, mostly because there are no transitional species. They don't see anything changing from one thing to another. And so they've decided that it all happens just all at once for no apparent reason. 
that there's just one generation where there's a giant leap into something new, which is the story behind the X-Men comic book, uh, and essentially, and, and a lot of other comic and mythological stuff. And so they would rather believe an absurd theory than acknowledge the truth, because acknowledging the truth would mean that they have to deal with God, that there is a creator and he created them and he uh, holds them accountable. Uh, totally off subject, but super intriguing, is figuring out what is meant in the Bible by demon. The most common answer is that they are fallen angels. I'm not saying that is incorrect, but the Bible nowhere specifically states demons are fallen angels. There's actually a lot of scholarly debate about uh, who they are exactly. And so we're, we're not going to solve it, uh, but I just thought I'd throw this out there because we haven't talked about it much. Demons could be disembodied spirits of dead Nephilim and their giant clan descendants. Now, the Nephilim are those uh, offspring introduced to us in the sixth chapter of Genesis. They were produced by fallen angels marrying and mating with human women. They perished in the global flood. They weren't angels and they weren't exactly human. Where did their spirits go after their death? And so they're like a completely separate species, uh, hybrid species of humanity. Uh, what happened to their spirits? The first book of Enoch, not written by Enoch, by the way, and written in about, I think, the second or third century BC, not when Enoch was on the earth. But that book, it's been an um, influential book of, at the time, it continues to be read because some of the quotes, uh, some of the verses from Enoch have made their way into the Bible, uh, you know, as, as Jude, for example, and Peter both quote from there. But anyway, the book of Enoch suggests that their spirits wander earth seeking a host. As wild as this sounds, it does fit certain biblical facts, such as demons are presented as spirits having a strong desire to possess a body. Isn't that what you think about when you think about a demon? Because some of the stories in the New Testament, they want to be in a body. And so you would get the, you know, the, the impression that they're disembodied spirits that are looking for even a temporary home, and they just as soon go into a herd of pigs uh, you know, as anything else. And uh, angels are not like that. Angels are not disembodied spirits. In fact, they have a pretty cool body. Uh, I don't think they'd want to give up their body for my body. It, it doesn't make sense to limit themselves in that way. So anyway, just something to think about. Uh, sometimes we have to challenge our thinking a little at a time, you know, and, and figure out what the Bible is really saying, not what we've heard people say that it's saying. And so check that out for yourself. So angels, could be fallen angels that possess people, could be the spirits of the Nephilim, could be something else altogether. Verse 49, Jesus answered, I don't have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Jesus always brought the conversations he was in to the point that he wanted to make. You don't need to answer every question someone asks you or overcome every objection they have. God the Holy Spirit can direct you to say something that speaks to their genuine need. You see sometimes some famous Christian is interviewed on television by one of the talking heads and, and, and the ones that you really are excited about is when they get the gospel in, right? You think, man, that, they just preached the gospel. They just totally ignored what that person asked them. Well, we could do that too. People who have questions about Christianity or Jesus or the Bible, they don't really know what they're asking usually. They haven't researched it. They're just parroting some things they've heard. And so just tell them, you know, follow your... Uh, the prompting of the Holy Spirit and, and talk to them about what 
is perhaps more meaningful to them. Bring the conversation to what you want to talk about, and that's always Jesus. It wasn't a demon Jesus was in fellowship with. It was the Father. Everything about Jesus, his thoughts, his words, his deeds, honored the Father. Dishonor Jesus, and you dishonor God the Father. It is uber important that we honor the Lord in how we present him and in how we represent him. Presenting him publicly, what is God like? Well, he's always like Jesus because Jesus said, my father and I are one, and if you've seen me, you've seen the father. And so whenever we're talking about God, wherever we're talking about it, Old Testament, New Testament, we want to present him as Jesus in the sense of this is what he is like, compassionate, full of grace, etc. And how we represent him, that gets into our own personal lifestyle. You don't really want ever, sometimes they're wrong and they're mean, but you don't really want people coming up to you and saying, and you say you're a Christian? I mean, that's not nice, you know. You wanna, now, people have wrong ideas of what it means to be a Christian. They, they have an idea of what you can't do, and, you know, this, and a lot of times they're wrong because they've never been church, but you understand what I'm saying. We want to properly represent the Lord. It shouldn't be a surprise to anybody that you love Jesus. Jesus wasn't, uh, verse 50, wait, uh, and I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Jesus wasn't concerned with the judgments of the Jews. He lived to please his father. Most of us put too high a value on what others think of us. It becomes the source of a lot of compromise and contention. It's better to seek the Lord's approval than the world's applause. God seeks glory, but he is no glory hound. He deserves the glory. J.I. Packer reminds us, our high and privileged calling is to do the will of God in the power of God for the glory of God. Verse 51, most assuredly I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Believers might die physically, but we will not, cannot die eternally. We will never see the second death. There are certain places that you will never get to see. They've been destroyed. In 2016, ISIS destroyed the gates of Nineveh as part of its ongoing campaign against cultural sites and relics. So those of you who are on your bucket list always thought, I'm going to go to the gates of Nineveh. That's my number one goal in life. Probably not. Maybe the Grand Canyon. I don't know. Anyway, uh, it's gone. They're gone. They've been destroyed. Prior to the resurrection of Jesus, the spirit or soul of every human uh, who died went to Hades. Christians of the church age, however, will never see Hades because its gates could not prevail against Jesus. I want to talk about Hades for a minute. It's described in the New Testament account of the rich man and Lazarus. It has two compartments. One compartment is a place of conscious torment. Non-believers are still confined there after death to await their resurrection to suffer the second death. The other compartment is a place of comfort. It's called paradise or Abraham's bosom. Believers went there to await the coming of Jesus. Now, Lazarus could see across an impassable gulf to the rich man. Abraham had a conversation with the rich man. After Jesus rose from the dead, the apostle Paul tells us that he descended to Hades and led the souls of believers waiting there to heaven. From that glorious moment forward, no believer who has died has seen Hades. Instead, we are promised at the moment of physical death 
to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. The moment I die, it won't be Abraham, I see, and there is no waiting time. Heaven is a wonderful place filled with glory and grace. We're going to see our Savior's face, and that's what the hope is. Lester Roloff said, I have all that I need here and heaven hereafter. How much richer could anybody want to be? Number two, you'll never taste death because Jesus defeated it for you. When you go to the donut shop, all those munchy baked delights are on display. I'm going through a donut phase, you can probably tell, but um, I need to get over that. But man, those glazed old-fashioned, wow. And the crumb, the cinnamon crumb, man. All those munchy baked delights. You can see them, but you haven't tasted them. We can't know why the Jews changed see to taste. Perhaps God the Holy Spirit prompted it to point us to another portion of God's word. Just because they didn't know what was going on doesn't mean the Holy Spirit didn't and, and that years later that the writer to the book of Hebrews would be inspired to say something about it. And so we're familiar with this terminology. In Hebrews 2.9 we read, We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. There are some who translate it that he might taste of every death. Jesus tasted of every death when he took your place on the cross. Gourmet coffees will put their flavor profile on the bag. I'm enjoying Bali Blue from Red Elephant Coffee right now. That's my current bag. I try and only open one bag at a time and get through it. The bag tells me this organic single origin is filled with flavors of dark chocolate, molasses, and brown sugar. Yum, huh? <laughs> Apply this to sin, substance abuse, spousal abuse, immoral sexual behavior, embezzlement, lying. Every sin has its own putrid, rank, fetid, rotting taste. Put them together in a sinner, and you've got something whose taste makes you want to vomit. Foul as it was, Jesus tasted of every death. He is the Savior of the whole world, especially those who believe. Things that are good make me puke, right? I mean, just certain foods. I mean, we're talking about the foulest thing that you can imagine. You know what makes me puke? Oysters on the half shell. You ever eaten oysters on the half shell? It's a delicacy. My, my brother and my dad... Um, my brothers and my dad, every Christmas Eve, they, they somehow have them. And so you got this little oyster there, and whew, man, it looks like somebody blew snot out of their nose onto this thing. I mean, it's like white snot. And uh, you, you get a little fork, and you unhook it, and you put it up, you know, the small end of your mouth, you go, and it goes down your throat, maybe. And it's all slimy and snot-like. And, and then with me, it gets right here, and then it comes right back up through my nose. If it wasn't snot before, it is now. And so, whoo, man, oysters on the half shell. Not cooked, just gimme, 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 you know. So, whoo, that's rough. <laughs> then the Jews said to him, now we know you have a demon. Abraham is dead. The prophets are dead. And you say, if anybody keeps my word, he shall never taste death. We know and trust Jesus. If he says we will not taste death, even though we know that we die, 
we believe him and we dig deeper to discover what he was talking about. The Jews did not know the Lord. They had no desire to know him. They wanted to murder him, as a matter of fact. When he said there were those who would never taste death, they only thought about the physical death of the body. They were unwilling to search it out. They didn't understand that there could be a beautiful nugget of truth here, uh, something that they had never seen before in God's word that could be really beneficial and wonderful. Verse 53, are you greater than our father Abraham who is dead and the prophets are dead? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus must think himself far greater than the founder of their faith and its prophets to make such a claim. Hence their disdain in saying essentially, who do you think you are? Jesus answered, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father who honors me of whom you say that he is your God. These guys were part of a system that valued status and position. There was a lot of what we would call politicking. Jesus seemed to be leapfrogging over them making himself out to be greater than both of them and their heritage. They projected onto Jesus their own corruptions. The Lord wasn't posturing. He was receiving, if he was receiving honor, it was from his father or for his father. Two quick lessons from this. Do not honor yourself. Don't look for accolades or applause. You don't need any recognition. Those times you feel overlooked, passed over, and used, rejoice in them. You serve the Lord. I read a story this week, and it's, it's, a, it's a sad story in, in the sense of, you know, but it tells you how people think. And, and so it was written by the daughter of a pastor, and uh, it was, it's about how hard the lives of pastors are, how they need sabbaticals all the time. Yeah. Anyway, uh, and so this gal was recalling an event where they were on vacation, and this lady in their fellowship fell sick and so the pastor you know came back got on a plane so he could visit with her and pray with her and then six months later they left the church dun, 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 dun. okay yeah that happened so I, I'm sure that hurts but are, did you visit her for you or for the Lord did you visit her so they would stay at your church or did, was, did the Lord tell you to do that I, that's all I have to say really right I mean you, we serve as unto the Lord and if you start getting hurt by people, give, you're going to end up, you know, the spiritual equivalent of the Unabomber. I mean, you're going to be living in some spiritual shell that, that can't be pierced. And so people are weird. I'm weird. You're weird. We all have weird stories. You have weird stories of what I've said and done to you and vice versa. You know? so, uh, and that's great. We laugh at them now. They're fun. But, uh, uh, you know, it, we, we can't want honor and glory from men. And if you're going to honor somebody, you want to compliment somebody for their service, do it in a context of God's gifting them, using them. Tell them what God is showing you uh, through their ministry, something like that. Verse 55, yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I'd be a liar like you, but I do not know him and keep his word. It's like gloves off, right? I'd be a liar just like you guys. Remember, your father's the devil, father of lies. I mean, this is, this is a really intense dialogue. A tremendous number of people who think that they know God do not know him because they have not received his son, Jesus Christ, as their savior. Jesus is either a liar or a lunatic or he is the Lord. I first read that well-used phrase in Josh McDowell's book, 
evidence that demands a verdict. Jesus was saying something like that. If he were to say that he was not God in human flesh, he'd be a liar because he was. Neither was he a demon-influenced lunatic by claiming deity. He was telling the truth. I do know him and keep his word. I want to be able to say that with some honesty. I'm sure you do too. I want to be knowing him and keeping his word. To be saved and to serve according to his word is a high calling for every believer. We like to point out that it's doable, first of all, because God the Holy Spirit resides in you, enabling you to read God's word and to do it. It's doable, second of all, because the one thing that God values is faithfulness. When believers are compared to the managers of the Lord's household called stewards, he tells us it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. He does not require we be found successful by any measure from the world. Outward success is nothing. It's not a good measure of the Lord blessing someone. Some of the largest so-called churches in America and around the world are led by heretics. And so God is not requiring you to be successful or to have things happen. Just to be faithful and do what he wants you to do and leave everything else with him. And that's hard sometimes because we like, like you know, something concrete to, to say, this proves that I am uh, you know, faithful. Uh, but you know in your heart if you are or not. And every one of us can meet that standard with the help of the Holy Spirit. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Earlier, Jesus told them that their spiritual father was the devil. Here, the Lord was talking about their physical descent. The Messiah would descend from Abraham through the nation of Israel. Abraham saw that by faith and rejoiced as a pilgrim stranger on the earth. He would see very few of the Lord's promises fulfilled himself, but he believed every one of them to the max. Then the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and have seen, you've seen Abraham? The Jews were terrible listeners. Jesus did not say that he had seen Abraham. Abraham did the seeing by faith in promises. Jesus had, of course, seen Abraham. He created Abraham in his mother's womb. He visited Abraham as a theophany. So he did see Abraham, but this is about Abraham seeing him. Now, we think because of internal clues in the Bible that Jesus was somewhere around 33 years old at the time this was taking place. The only thing significant about 50 years is that God limited the age of temple priests to between 25 and 50 years. So you had to be at least 25 years old. It was a prerequisite. And then you had to quit when you were 50. I like that. Uh, but it, it, I don't know what happened to that. You, these people who are Old Testament people, let's get back into that kind of stuff. You know, so, Wow. Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus did not say before Abraham was, I was. That could mean that he came into existence as a created being before Abraham. Rather, he used the name of God to talk about his position with God in eternity, I am. The Lord Jesus had dwelt with God the Father from all eternity. There was never a time when he came into being or when he did not exist. Then they took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. 
Stones never seem difficult to find for the Jews. I mean, there's several passages where it's like, and then they picked up stones. Hey, look at that, where'd those rocks come from? There's rocks everywhere. And you think, well, it was a desert community. I mean, you know, there's lots of rocks. They're in the temple. They're not in the, you know, the uh, zero landscape part of the temple where there's rocks everywhere. I mean, they're they're in the temple and yet they they took up stones. the temple was under construction during the time of Jesus. I, 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 not that it's a huge deal, but I didn't learn that until you know, way into my Christian life. So Herod, who was building out this beautiful temple, uh, it wasn't finished. It took 60 or 70 years to finish, and it wasn't finished. And so probably there were piles of rocks in the temple uh, you know, that were getting ready for the contractors. Uh, as soon as they got off of their lunch break, which lasted four or five hours. But, uh, you know, they, and so they get these rocks. Uh, and they're ready to throw. Jesus could hide who he was. He did it in the synagogue in his hometown when they tried to throw him off a cliff. It says he just walked right through them safely. After he rose from the dead, the Lord hid his identity from the two disciples returning home to Emmaus. He suddenly appeared walking next to them and had a conversation with them, and and they didn't know who he was until uh, in their home he broke bread and revealed himself. Adam Clark wrote, in all probability, he rendered himself invisible. I think the Lord had a lot of fun hiding himself. Wouldn't you? You ever think about the Lord having any fun at all? Or are you into the, you know, most of the TV portrayals of Jesus from the 80s? Uh, But, uh, you know, it it just, hey, wasn't Jesus just here? Where'd he go? Oh, there he is. You know, he's just hiding himself and stuff. There's a great... uh, um, scene in a movie called Risen. I think it's Risen. Joseph Fiennes is in it. It's, it's a Christian movie. Really good movie, Risen. And it uh, talks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there's a scene where Jesus is just all of a sudden there, and it's just is freaky the way they do it and really cool. So uh, I think we probably have it in the DVD library. So good thing to catch up on. Death makes me very angry, admits Larry Ellison, CEO of Oracle and the fifth richest person in the world. It doesn't make any sense to me. Death has never made any sense to me. Just how can a person be there and just vanish, just not be there? Jeff Bezos, Peter Thiel, Sam Altman, all the other billionaires seeking immortality, as well as the poorest pauper, will not just vanish. They're going to live forever. Jesus tasted death for everyone. As the God-man, fully God and fully human, he could die in our place to pay the penalty for our sin. His resurrection from the dead proves that death, the second death, is a defeated foe. No one need die and wait in Hades. God promises believers a new glorified fit for heaven and space travel body. And so these guys that want to have immortality and travel in space, all they have to do is wait until they die. We will enjoy eternity with God in redeemed, restored creation. Non-believers will have a remarkable body too, but it will be fit for an eternity of suffering. One commentator said, the death of Jesus Christ means the death of death itself. The death of death in the death of Jesus Christ also means victory over death for those who trust in Christ as their God and Savior. Death is swallowed up in victory, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord.